Uh, turn again, if you would, please, uh, to Luke chapter 14. The last part of that chapter we looked at uh, when we were last together, that was a couple of weeks ago now. Um, <clears throat> in the ESV that I'm looking at, it's, it's got a heading of the cost of discipleship. And you may remember uh, the uh, stridency of that passage Something that we've been seeing all the way through this Gospel of Luke, especially as we get further and further into it, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Jesus is training these 12 men. Not only is he uh, giving instruction to, to the people who, who he interacts with, whether in Israel or even outside of Israel, but in particular, he's grooming these 12, these 12 men. And he knows what they're going to encounter and he knows what they need to know and how they need to know it. So as we move through any of the gospels, you see this, this uh, sort of chronology of increasing stridency and frankly, increasing polarization as Jesus becomes clearer and clearer in who he is and what he is. Uh, people, people either go toward it or away from it. And, uh, it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that we have been going through these passages, but they do, uh, they do become fairly difficult last week. Uh, for instance, under this cost of discipleship, uh, we saw that, um, that statement in the 26th and 7th verses here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we were thankfully able to ameliorate some of the uh, obvious difficulty with that word hate. Uh, we went back to Genesis, and you could have made it easier. I could have made it easier for you by telling you to go to Matthew chapter 10, uh, where Matthew has a very similar discussion by Jesus. And he simply there says, unless you love me more than you love father, mother, or sister, brother. Uh, so we mentioned that it's a preference. Nonetheless, it is a very, very demanding statement. Jesus is either first or, or forget it. You're, the Christian is going to have Jesus as first. And uh, that's why this couple of questions behind me here on the board, we were dealing with these. Uh, we talked about Martin Luther. We talked about Bonhoeffer. We talked you can just go through so many uh, people in the history of the scriptures, but frankly, you don't need to look at the luminaries that we all are familiar with in their life stories of being those who stand and stood for Jesus, even to the point of death. Frankly, it is in every one of our lives. Uh, so far, at least, we have not had to stand and either be killed for our faith or not killed for it, uh, but... Uh, the way this world's going, I'm not sure that uh, that we're going to make it without being a challenge uh, in that regard also. Uh, but this, these questions, <clears throat> these questions keep coming and they never stop coming to the Christian. What value do you place on your soul and what price are you willing to pay for your soul? Uh, it, that's just a very, very excellent couple of questions that we need to to ponder as we go through the difficulties, uh, not only from the sin of other people entering our lives, but the sin of our own hearts and minds. Uh, but today we're going to get to Luke 15, and I'm going to show you a better 
question. Uh, one that equally uh, needs to be considered. Luke chapter 15. What value does God place on your soul? What price is God willing to pay for your soul? So as we move to chapter 15 in Luke, uh, <laughs> if that's a better speaker, I will sit down. <laughs> but uh, Luke chapter 15 is a very, very singular chapter. Now, every chapter, of course, in Scripture is, uh, is singular, but uh, uh, he's showing us a way forward. <clears throat> It's almost as if you get through the 14th chapter in, uh, in Luke and, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, I've pushed to the point of, of uh, I can't push them anymore and I want to tell them why they can carry this out. Because if you just read through chapter 14, you're thinking, Boy, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I'm willing to do that. I don't know that if you stand me up in front of a wall and say either uh, either deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you, I'm, I don't know. Well, Jesus is going to tell us how this is possible and why uh, we should look forward to the rest of this life rather than, than away from it. Uh, this, of course, is, is a very famous chapter of the lost Items. We have a lost sheep, we have a lost coin, we have a couple of lost sons. Uh, in a sense, normally, and we will approach it this way, as three parables. It's in fact one parable that tells the same story from three different vantage points. And uh, while it's talking about lostness, to be certain, the emphasis that we, we need to catch all the way through all three of them is the rejoicing that's going to go on here. So, so focus on rejoicing as we get uh, to this first of the three passages. So we're gonna look at verses one through seven uh, today. The, the uh, normal title given to this is the lost sheep. And all of these, these stories, of course, are very, very familiar to us all, <clears throat> but they, they're going to, um, to speak to these two questions left to our own devices, the other side of that board is tough to deal with. This makes it all possible. Uh, look at verse one of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Uh, that's, of course, um, you, you read that and, and don't even pause. You keep, keep going from it, but we need to pause a little bit here to see who these people were that are drawing close to Jesus. Jesus is, is moving in his journey toward Jerusalem and toward a cross. And these tax collectors uh, are drawing to him. Now, it would be, um, I, I tried to, uh, to think about uh, some sort of analogy. Of course, a tax collector has been a tax collector in any culture throughout history. Uh, Nobody is that um, enamored by tax collectors. Uh, but these people in particular in Israel were unusually scandalous as a group for a number of reasons. They were absolutely hated by the Jews because 
to be a Jewish tax collector in the time of Jesus meant you sold your soul to the Romans. The Romans were occupying Israel and for these people to, to uh, come and collect taxes, the taxes they're collecting are not for Israel, they're for Rome. Uh, so these are Jews who, who basically are saying, I'm willing to sacrifice my brothers and sisters for the sake of this power that is, that is in control here. They're selling out their countrymen, in other words, uh, in the eyes of the countrymen. Uh, so these are people, uh, the synagogues of, of Jesus's day would not even accept gifts from tax collectors. Uh, they were seen as such a scourge uh, that gifts were not uh, accepted. The Jewish courts would not let them testify. Their word was, was considered worthless. A man named John Chrysostom, uh, if you've ever read uh, any of uh, ancient church history, John Chrysostom was known as the golden mouth. He was considered the greatest preacher of the entire ancient church era. Uh, and he had this to say about tax collectors. He said, the tax collector is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of specious greed. <laughs> now these people uh, who are absolutely vilified in this culture and society are being drawn to Jesus and it's driving the Pharisees absolutely crazy. That's what uh, is going to be the tension point in these first seven verses. These, uh, uh, these tax collectors are coming. Tax collectors and sinners are being drawn to Jesus. Uh, if you get to the second verse, we'll bump into our friends and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What a terrible, terrible thing. They are, they are the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are worried that Jesus is meeting with sinners and even, heaven forbid, eating with them. Uh, the scandalous people, of course, in this verse are not the sinners and they're not the tax collectors. They're the Pharisees <laughs> and the scribes. Uh, to get the A background, not uh, the background, but, but certainly a background that's very, very informative about what's going on here. Uh, if you wish to turn here, I'm going to be here a little bit of time here. Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel is, we recall, a prophet in Babylon. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel after they have lost their birthright, so to speak, after they have been, Jerusalem and so forth has been uh, assaulted and, and pretty much uh, dismantled by the Babylonians and they are in Babylonian captivity. And Ezekiel is a prophet that God raises to speak to his people in this era of captivity. Uh, this entire chapter is very, very helpful, but you see the heading of it, prophesy or prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Now think about how the juxtaposition of what's gone on here. Whoever the shepherds were, they must not have been shepherding very well because Israel did not come around. Uh, actually, Judah, the southern kingdom we're talking about here. Uh, they didn't come around. They didn't straighten up and fly right and 
the Babylonians did come and, and demolish them and take them into captivity. And they're going to be there. And Ezekiel says, you know what one of the problems is? The shepherds of Israel. Now, when Ezekiel's talking about the shepherds of Israel, he's talking primarily about the kings of Israel. Uh, a number of kings, king after king after king. And when we were going through uh, Jeremiah in particular, we saw that, that kind of up and down. You'd have a really, really good king, and then you would have a really, really bad king. Uh, what chapter was that again? In Ezekiel's 34. Uh, so if you open with the problem in Ezekiel 34, first two verses, Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. I'm going to go uh, to verse four and then verse 10. Verse four, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And down to verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Uh, that's a very forthright uh, prophecy coming from Ezekiel. And again, if we go deeper into this chapter, it's not just the kings he's talking about. He then goes down to the church leaders. He calls them under shepherds. Peter will underscore that in his uh, first book in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, but uh, Ezekiel is going to, to get into this also now. The solution that Ezekiel's going to bring to this clear-cut uh, defamation of all of the shepherds of Israel, uh, we can go to verses 23 and 24. Ezekiel says, again, prophesying the words that God has given him, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, Ezekiel's obviously speaking these words 400, 500 years after King David. So when he says, I'm going to send them my servant David, who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Ezekiel is looking down the road and he's, he's saying there's going to be a shepherd who's going to come who will feed my sheep, who will care for my sheep, who will find them when they are lost. Uh, this this uh, chapter is, is uh, full of very, very significant uh, issues that, um, that I'll try not to, to go into too much more depth with. Um, however, I... Uh, Interestingly, different, different commentators, Thomas Oden says this, the shepherd image is the pivotal analogy for leadership in the Bible. 
Now, what Odin is saying is the shepherd analogy is going to, is going to spread out to all church leaders, to all civic leaders. Now here in Ezekiel, we're looking at a theocracy. That theocracy no longer exists. So there's a difference in terms of, of uh, this sort of, of uh, language and what you will find in the New Testament, for instance. But uh, Alistair Campbell has another fascinating twist. He says, quote, more, the shepherds, talking about Ezekiel, the shepherds were more like cowboys of the wild west than modern farm shepherds. There's something very important there. What he's talking about, there there are a lot of books uh, that have been written in our era that that, uh, go to sheep farms and they talk to shepherds and they say, what does it mean uh, to to be a shepherd today? Uh, A lot of them having to do with the 23rd Psalm and so forth, trying to understand more fully this word shepherd. But what uh, Campbell picks up on, and especially from the era that, uh, that Ezekiel's talking about, uh, he says a shepherd back in the day of Israel is not, he's not on some big mechanized uh, uh, farm that that's has uh, hundreds and thousands perhaps of sheep uh, that uh, tends to, to the mechanics of it. He's more like a cowboy in the Wild West. Uh, everybody who does not grow up American loves this, this notion of it cowboys in the wild west but he's saying something interesting there what he's saying is that the shepherd that we're reading about in Jesus's time was not the person on a big mechanical farm he's a, he's perhaps a single person who's out in the wilderness most of the time meaning he's not in a town he's not in a city he's not in a village he's got uh, a few maybe 100 200 however many sheep uh, and he is it he does everything for these sheep. And um, we're going to see how that's going to enter the parable that Jesus is, is talking about in a minute. Um, when he brings up, when Ezekiel brings up David here, what he's saying is, I'm going to fulfill the covenant with David. You'll find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The phrasing the words are identical. If we had time, we would go into how Ezekiel mimics the wording from 2 Samuel 7 when he says, I'm going to send my, my shepherd David. Uh, you, you connect that with Jesus, then you've got David back here in about 1000 BC, Ezekiel in about 500 BC, and now we're looking at Jesus and we're looking at a thousand years of the movement of that Davidic covenant into the new covenant. So very, very singular ways that that Jesus is going to be talking to us in a minute. Um, What he says about this this David is that we're we're going to unite Israel under one monarch. We're going to have a ruler after God's own heart. We're going to have a new level of peace and prosperity. He's not talking about the new covenant there. He's talking about the the blessings of this... uh, this Sinaitic covenant that uh, the, the Sinai covenant that that uh, the people of Israel are living under when Ezekiel is talking to them here, and what he means by that they have they have experienced the negatives, they've experienced the punishments. Jerusalem's been destroyed, they've been destroyed. They're down in captivity, and they're going to be there for seventy years. And what Ezekiel is saying is God is going to turn this around. He's going to bring us a better leader. He's going to get us back. Now he's not telling them all that yet, 
but we know the end of that story. They're going to come back from captivity and they're going to be uh, back, not in, in, uh, uh, in modern uh, Jerusalem. They're going to have to rebuild it. They're going to have to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, the Ezra Nehemiah story. But looking through all of that, he then comes to Jesus and that will get us back uh, to Luke chapter 15 and this uh, little parable that is uh, so uh, so full of, of analogies to what we have just seen. I want to just give you one more thing, though, from Ian Duguid, one of my absolute favorite commentary writers. Uh, he talks about a shepherd as being a combination of toughness and tenderness. This is going to be Jesus. We saw the flip side of the board. That's the toughness. Uh, it's, it's my way or the highway. I don't want lukewarm. I don't want you to dabble with me. You either commit yourself to me or you are not my child. Uh, but uh, of course, the tenderness is going to come in a, few, uh, in a few more verses. And there's an interesting phrase that, uh, that Duguid did not put in quotes. So I'm assuming it's his phrase, but I've heard it often. Afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. That is the essence of every Christian, what we all should be doing. It's, a, it's the essence of being a Christian parent, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. When our children have, have sinned, uh, we need discipline. Godly, loving discipline is the order of the day for the parent. Uh, but when the child is genuinely afflicted, then comfort is the order of the day. That, that back and forth, that's why you have church discipline, for instance. Um, I don't know how many arguments I've gotten in over the, over the decades with people who say church discipline is just mean. It means spirit of God is love. Uh, yeah, God is love. He's also disciplined. He's also, uh, he's going to afflict the comforting and the comfortable. Uh, so that is going to also be a key as we go through all three of these parables in Luke 15. That's another thing to be looking for. Look at the shepherd afflicting the comfortable, comforting the afflicted. Um, let's get back. Uh, so we've seen Jesus in Luke 15. He's out and these tax collectors and sinners are flocking to him. The Pharisees and the scribes don't like that. Uh, so in verse three, Jesus responds to him. He says, okay, I'll tell you a little parable. I'll give you some insight uh, here. Uh, now it says, uh, he told them this parable. He's talking to both the scribes, the Pharisees, the sinners, and the tax collectors. Everybody in this audience is being addressed here. And he's going to afflict the comfortable. In other words, he's going to lower the, the boom on the scribes and the Pharisees and he's going to comfort the afflicted, that is the sinners and the tax collectors. Into verse four. What man of you, Jesus begins, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus, is, this is a rhetorical question. Uh, Jesus is assuming that the, obviously the answer is every one of you would go after the one because the one out of a hundred, even though we might sit here and say, well, come on, it's only one out of a hundred, it's only 1%. Uh, Jesus said, no, no, this 1% is not going to be just written off. 
Jesus is assuming that, that everybody is going to go and find this sheep. But look at verse five. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now I mentioned that rejoicing is going to be uh, really the backstory of all three of these parables, whether it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the parable, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the essence of that parable is not that the son comes home, that's, that's good news. Uh, it isn't that the elder brother is gonna be addressed also, it's when the father runs rejoicing to the son who has repented of sin. That is, is behind uh, all three of these. But here, Jesus said, uh, imagine the shepherd who goes out, he's got one sheep that he can't find. He goes out and finds his sheep and he rejoices because the lost has been found. The instruction, of course, uh, picking up from Ezekiel going into to David, as, as go back to David and then up to Jesus, is that God will not let his lost remain lost. Uh, talking about bringing comfort to the afflicted. Every one of us are sinful people and uh, we struggle with our sin and, and we will always be struggling with our sin. But, but the good news of, of this parable is God is not going to lose anyone that is his. He's going to seek until he finds. He is going to go bring that lost sheep back. And he's going to celebrate that lost sheep when he is found. If you go forward uh, to uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, interestingly, he says that after he has brought Zacchaeus out of a tree, a tax collector, one of those people who's in the story here in a very sort of tangential way, but, but Zacchaeus is like all the other tax collectors. And Jesus uh, goes and retrieves him from his tree and says the son of man came for this purpose to seek and to save the lost. Uh, if you very familiar passage, very wonderful passage for every sinful believer. John chapter 10 is the famous, I am the good shepherd uh, chapter of John uh, verse 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In other words, uh, while we will be lost, sometimes we intentionally get lost in our sinfulness and intentionally want to uh, ignore what we know we should be doing. Uh, the bottom line is uh, ultimately you will not be able to be a lost sheep if you are part of Jesus's sheep pen. Uh, so we go on to verse, uh, we go, go back to the front end, actually, of verse, of verse five. It's interesting, uh, Phil Riken, when he's going through this passage, talks about the burden of the shepherd. Uh, verse five again says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. We looked at that last word, rejoicing. Riken has some fascinating insights into this notion of, of this shepherd. Now, here's where I think probably Campbell sees the cowboy. 
uh, if, if you're in this big mechanized farm in the middle of, of wherever, uh, you probably don't, uh, you're not wandering 10 miles away from the farm and, and come walking back with a sheep on your shoulder. You're going to have a Ford F-150 or something uh, to avoid that, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, there is a burden that is assumed that uh, some commentators pick up on, and that is to lay the sheep on your shoulder and carry it back. Now, some of the rhetoric um, talks about the, the um, feeling of the heart. Uh, you may re- you've probably seen the statue. It's the oldest known Christian statue, interestingly enough. The statue of the shepherd with the sheep draped across his shoulders. That's from the third century AD. Uh, but uh, what a lot of commentators would, would go into is, is that the shepherd, as he's walking back, carrying the sheep, feels the sheep's heart beating, feels the breath of the sheep, senses the contentment of the sheep to be found. Uh, they'll then go into the sheep. The sheep feels the warmth of the shepherd's skin, feels the heartbeat of the shepherd, senses the joy of the shepherd in coming out to seek him and find him. Now, some of that rhetoric to me kind of, I don't know, it's a good TV commercial. Uh, I don't know that the shepherd is sitting there feeling the heartbeat of the sheep. I don't know that the sheep is sensing, boy, the shepherd is, is really happy that he found me. Uh, but I can tell you this, the good shepherd senses your heartbeat. The good shepherd, now that's capital G, capital, I'm talking about Jesus here. The good shepherd created your heart. The good shepherd knows when your heart speeds up, slows down, breaks, goes into an ER for surgery eventually, uh, whatever. The good shepherd does feel the heartbeat of the sheep, creates the heartbeat, oversees the heartbeat, does know the breath of the sheep and does sense the contentment of the sheep to be found. Uh, you and I as, as uh, children of God, we hopefully will feel uh, the warmth of the embrace of, of uh, the good shepherd uh, and this sense of a beating heart that Jesus has for his lost sheep and the joy and the rejoicing that goes on by the good shepherd every time a sheep is lost and then found. Verses six and seven conclude this parable. When he comes home, this is the shepherd, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, That's that's the epicenter of what uh, Jesus is speaking He's speaking to the Pharisees and to the scribes and he's saying, look at yourselves. You are the leaders. You are the spiritual leaders of Israel and all you feel is disdain for these tax collectors, disdain for these people who are sinners. And when they come to me, you're angry about it. You're angry with them and you're angry with me. Why? Because you have not been the shepherd of the sheep that you are called to be. But I, Jesus, am the good shepherd Uh, So you see this amazing communal aspect, the host of heaven itself rejoicing over the the return of the lost. Uh, Luke 15, seven, we just, we need to, that's a verse, that's one of those refrigerator verses. 
Uh, that's a verse you need to have and reflect on uh, fairly often. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who need no repentance. Uh, that is, that is the, the flow of heaven. That is the, the impetus behind uh, this, this uh, sense of, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit with, with the angelic host and all those saints who've gone before who are around that throne of grace, repentance uh, and joy that comes from a sinner who turns and is no longer lost. I want to conclude just by reading, uh, I'm not going to comment on any of this. I want to just uh, finish with, with a couple of passages. I'm going to start with uh, the guy we think of uh, with when the word shepherd comes up, and that's David. I'm going to go to Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors with, while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Uh, a lot of this, fits in as well to a passage that uh, these words will be familiar from, uh, from Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is describing the good shepherd and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's of course from Isaiah 53. And I want to just uh, finish with <clears throat> the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Luke 14, that's just a very, very difficult assignment. Every Christian has this difficult assignment to be completely devoted to Jesus and to be those who, who try to repent and change and grow and put to death our sinfulness. But the fact remains that we could not ever be rid of our sin. And therefore the impossibilities that we seem to feel from Luke 14 is met in Luke 15. How much is your soul worth to God? How much is God willing to pay for your soul? The answer is everything. He sent his own son to this earth who endured. You, you remember the, the awful descriptions of the, of, uh, the garden when he is, blood is pouring out of his pores. He's, he's not only given up this perfect communion that we cannot ever understand that he had with his father in order to come to this earth to begin with, but for the joy that was presented to him, he came and he came and he lived and he took your sin and he took my sin and he allowed himself to be nailed to a piece of wood and killed for your sin and mine. That's how much your soul is worth to God. That's how much God is willing to pay. And he is rejoicing over the privilege of doing so. Let's uh, go to this Lord in prayer. Father, uh, as, as difficult as we found in the words of the cost of discipleship, and it is, it is a challenge. Uh, Father, help us to see it as a joy. Help us to, to realize that when we assist in trying to put our sins to death, even though we know we cannot do it and we will still die a sinful person, we know that the good shepherd, when we were lost, has come, sought us, and found us, draped us over his shoulders, listened to our beating heart, and given us contentment. For in him, we are saved. And in him, we know not only he has rejoiced, but the entirety of heaven rejoices every time a sinner repents of his sin and comes back to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are willing to pay the cost for us. Thank you that our souls mean so much to you. We are humbled by this great truth and thankful to have such a shepherd in whose name we pray. Amen.